Welcome to Life Center Church. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast and our church, visit lifecenternyc.com. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in this place. Lord, thank you, Holy Spirit. We just welcome you to continue to move. I thank you, Lord, that you're speaking. I thank you, Father, that we have access to your, to your throne of grace by your blood. Lord, today, would you illuminate your word? Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word? Would you reveal Jesus in all his glory today through your word to us? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So good to be with you guys. We, uh, I'm going to be jumping into Titus chapter 2 today. And I covered it two weeks ago. And so I'm doing three weeks of this. Whenever I speak again, I'll do the third chapter. But if you weren't there two weeks ago, I'm going to give you a little recap. Um, by the way, you can see all of our stuff on YouTube or you can go to our podcast or on Spotify and Apple as well. So Titus, really interesting book. Um, it's something that God's been stirring in my heart for a while now. And in the context of it is, it was written by Paul while he was in prison. So he was in jail for a second time when he wrote it. He wrote to Titus, who is his spiritual son. So Titus actually gets saved through Paul at some juncture. And Titus is sent to the island of Crete, which is an island in Greece, um, the biggest island in Greece. Um, so Titus is Paul's spiritual son, and he trusts Titus with lots. So I talked about last time the affection he had for Titus, the trust that he bestowed on Titus, and he's sending him to Crete, and the the Cretans have a lot of issues going on. So it's a mercenary type of area. There's lots of ports, and there's lots of, with mercenaries, they basically do anything for money, right? So if you you, you pay the price, they'll do what you want to do, and so there's, so there's lots of wickedness and not good things happening in Crete. There's also lots of false influences and teachers in Crete, and one of them particularly Paul hits on, and we're going to talk about that later today. So there's false teachers, and Paul is doing a few things. He's setting up his spiritual sons. We talked about last time, God is raising up the church to look like a family. So family is the model of the church, and we see that in the scriptures, and we see spiritual fathers and mothers planting spiritual sons and daughters. And so that is the model that we have here, and that's the model we see in the book of Titus. Titus is tasked with a few different things, and we're going to put those up on the screen. Um, so Titus is tasked with, first, putting things in order that are unfinished, and he's tasked with finding and appointing elders in various towns throughout Crete. And so we talked a bit last time about these elder attitudes, elder attributes, what's it mean to be an elder, and what is required for eldership. And so we talked about the function of an elder. We talked about the office of an elder. So go back and listen to that if you have not. But all that's the context for chapter 1. So chapter 1 is Paul directing Titus to give instruction to the church in Crete. Chapter 2 is instruction, catch this, for raising up new Christian households. New Christianity is new on the scene. How do you operate? How, how, does, how is a household supposed to operate under the lordship of Jesus? So that's what we're going to talk about today. Chapter 3, the new humanity established by Christ that's supposed to go into the world. And so just to break it down a bit, um, I, I like this commentary I heard. They said chapter 1 is really instruction to the church for Titus. Chapter 2 is instruction to households, to families. And chapter 3 is instruction on how to take what Christ has given you and bring it into the world. And that fits nicely with our core values at this church. So our core values are 
prayer and presence. That's how we relate, connecting with him through prayer, connecting with him through his presence. Number two, family. How does a family operate? The family of Christ that's here, but also families when you go home, your physical families. And our third core value is spheres of influence. How do you take what God's given you and infuse it into your workplace or wherever you're called? So jumping in today, Titus chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 1. So turn with me to Titus 2, starting at verse 1. Here's what it says. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Now, this is, he states this quite a number of times. He talked about sound doctrine a bit last, last week. And sound doctrine, essentially, that word sound means to be in good health. And doctrine is simply teaching. So you, healthy teaching is what he's saying. When you hear sound doctrine, think healthy teaching. So that Greek word, here's what it means. It means, or one way to describe it, is Christians whose opinions are free from mixture of error. Christians who have opinions are free from mixture or error. How many know we need that in our day and age? <laughs> we desperately need that. Probably as much or more so than, than the Christians needed it. Another description of that word for sound is one who keeps the graces and is strong. Lord, give us sound doctrine that we may not be mixed and that we would keep your grace and walk in strength in our hour, in our day. So many of you know I have three kids, including a two-year-old. Um, my two-year-old is Florence, and she is, she's like the most outgoing and strong-willed of all my children. And I thought Lilu was by far going to be that, but she has surpassed Lilu. And so she wakes up. In the past couple weeks, parents can relate with me here. She decided 5 a.m. is like a great time to pop up. And she's just going to be wide awake at 5 a.m., ready to go. And so, so that's where I've been. So at 5 a.m., I'm hanging with Flo, you know, doing whatever we're doing. And, and so I've been this pattern of hanging out with her for two, three hours every morning because that's, you know, what we do as parents. And, and so naturally, we'll start off with a book of her choice, which is always the same book. And then they'll do a second book, which is always the same second book. And then we'll do a third one. And the fourth might vary. Um, but then we'll go into puzzle mode, all right? So we got a ton of puzzles, which she's very territorial about, um, but she's inherited them for all her sisters, so I don't know why, but they, these are my puzzles. So we, we put together these puzzles. Now, her favorite puzzle is a princess puzzle, and this is a great princess puzzle, but let me tell you, it's for ages six and up. So two-year-old, age six and up puzzle doesn't work. So basically, I end up, I can do the puzzle very fast, by the way. I should, like, time myself. Um, I end up taking her and guiding her as we create this puzzle together. And so we'll, you know, take the pieces, we'll dump them all out. And basically with each puzzle piece, like, oh, okay, where's that girl's head? Where's that castle? Where's that? And I'm sliding them over, right? And then she is trying to figure out how they go. uh, Turn it a bit, like turn to the left, uh, to the right. Uh, uh, Yeah, no, it's upside down. Okay, there, there, that's it. And, And so I'll guide and direct her. And with every puzzle piece, let me tell you, she touches that piece and she puts it in its proper order. But how many of you know, I'm guiding and directing the whole process. And there is no way this little girl could possibly put together this princess puzzle without her father's leadership and guidance. So this is our normal, our normal pattern of puzzle building. And, and I want to connect this with, well, how many of you know too, okay, when we finish the puzzle, we put it all together, we both celebrate. We both go nuts because look what we did But the truth is, I did most of the work. But she pushed them in. And she was present. And she and she listened to my direction. And so together we put this these pieces together. I want to connect this with sound doctrine. Because sometimes we hear the word sound doctrine, and it's a bit like 
intellectual and like, you know, we're just going the word to understand these truths versus what I believe sound doctrine really is, is the puzzle pieces are the scriptures. And so that's the piece we're putting together of God's storyline, right? But we have to do it in connection with our father who's guiding us and directing us. And we get a piece we don't know where it fits or we're like, ah, like, you know, I don't know where this goes. Like, I can't spin this right. He's going to show us how this fits in the context of all his scriptures, in the context of the revelation of God, which is beautiful and wonderful, and that we get to ascertain through our life and through his word and through experiences that we have on the earth. And so this is this beautiful picture of how do we grow in sound doctrine. It's with him, but it's with the word. Because you can't have a puzzle without the pieces. So sometimes people just want, they just want to say, I'm going to talk to my father, I'm going to talk to God, I'm going to figure things out. Your puzzle is going to be all messed up because you don't actually have the scriptures. You don't have the word to actually put the pieces together. And so sometimes we go through it that way, and it gets troubling. How many know sometimes we just take the puzzle pieces and try to put them together, but we don't seek the spirit. We don't, we don't ask God. We don't, we don't, and it's not engaging with God. So we might get the right words, but we get the wrong tone. We don't understand his heart. We don't understand the value system that God has. So when we do it in partnership with him, we get the best of both worlds. And so the beauty about this analogy, I think, is a reminder that when you get revelation, when you get sound doctrine, when you understand God's word, it's by his grace. You didn't just figure out this puzzle because you're really ambitious and really smart. Like he revealed it to you. And so that helps you to not get puffed up because you got a lot of people out there who claim to have sound doctrine, but they are so puffed up and they want to tell you all that they know about the Bible. And even that shows me you don't have sound doctrine (laughs) because there's a reality that you got that by God's grace. And so you should hold that humbly. You should hold that truth humbly and, and, and be willing to learn from others but also, to be fair, be, to refute things that aren't sound. There's nothing wrong with refuting things that are not sound doctrine. And I think we should get better. And I would encourage us to come from a humble state, but to say, no, 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 no. That's not what my Bible says. Like, you, you have this vision, you have this dream, that's cool. But that does not connect with the scriptures. So I'm going to throw that out. And I'm going to, in love, challenge that because God wants us to honor his word. And because revelation of God is a precious thing that we've been entrusted to carry. Amen? All right, so... Continuing with this theme, I'm going to jump back to Titus 1, chapter 10, because this is where we hear of the people that are not teaching sound doctrine that Paul is asking Titus to refute. So Titus 1, verse 10, um, talks about these rebellious people who are full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households. Their teaching is literally taking whole households and disrupting them. So just picture that. And because they're teaching what they ought not to teach, and they're doing it for what? Dishonest gain. That's one way to pick up if something is not sound. Who, who is telling it to you? And is there dishonest gain involved, right? It's tough to always know the heart. But when we actually get around people and we know their life, it helps us to test if what they're saying is sound. We test on the word, but also test on the character of the person you're talking to. But if you're just taking, if you're taking your scripture or your teaching from somebody you don't know, like how can you actually test the character of their life? So we can test it by the word, but we can also test it by the character of the person who's delivering it. 
Um, so this circumcision group, they, I mentioned them a bit last time. They're concerned with ritual purity. So they are Judaizers that are trying to really enslave people back into the traditions of the Jewish people. So they're saying, do these traditions win favor with God by your works? So essentially, they miss the, the real law of God, the commands of God, and they instead put traditions on people and try to get them to achieve their salvation, in a sense, by the works they do. No good. No good. He's saying refute these people. Their actions deny their truth. And grace, in fact, is what you need. Like, not these works. So it's not by works. It's by grace through faith that we know from Ephesians 2, chapter 8 and 9. So they're refuting these Judaizers. Um, but how does this apply to us right now? Right? How do we walk in sound doctrine as a church, as those entrusted with the word of God to share the gospel of Jesus? I would say a lot of unsound doctrine comes from people taking culture and tagging it and mixing it into the gospel. Like, so actually it's really helpful to understand the culture and understand even church history and how things have transpired. So you can have like, you need some sort of bearing for what you're listening to. Like, oh, that is, that's mixed. That's from the culture. That's not from the word. And so it does help just to understand the world around us. I would say this too. Do not be impressed by new teaching. Somebody comes out, I got this brand new word. I got this thing nobody's ever heard. I'm going to drop this, you know, bomb on you. I already got red flags, honestly. Like, like really? You got some dreams, some, something that's beyond, like, Scripture? It should enhance the Scripture. It, it should point to the Scripture. But if this is something brand new and, and they, they're saying, oh, the whole church will be revolutionized by this vision. No, I already am not buying it. And so I, I think it's important that we as pastors and leaders, like, share with you all, here are some things that we do as we process these things so that we can throw out the things that are nonsense and hold to sound doctrine, to what's true and right and good. So we're, we're homeschooling our kids right now, and um, one of the, I've learned a lot about education. So one of the things I learned recently um, was there is, how many of you know there's such a hyper-individualism in the world right now? You want to talk about what's happening in the culture. Everything is hyper-individualism. It's all about you and what you can get in, like, what's your truth? And, and, and it's very individualized to a sense that, to a, to, a, to a fault, to be fair. And so in teaching right now, in, in creative writing, uh, one of the things they've been doing in the school system is they'll, they'll get your kids to work on creative writing really young. So they'll have you, like, you know, write a story about a bear and, like, and create, like, you know, his life and, and, and his worldview. And, like, you know, they'll, they'll have you create stories on your own. But what we've learned, Vanessa and I, through homeschooling, is actually that's not what you want to do. Like, you don't want to inspire some of that creativity so early. In fact, what you want to do is you want to introduce them to good writing. You want to introduce them to what does a good sentence look like? What does a, let, let's, let's introduce you to literature that's really inspiring, that's really thorough and really well done because that mind needs to understand what a good sentence looks like and what good writing feels like before it begins to create. And, and I want to propose to you, actually, I'm not going to propose, I'm going to say it's true. Like the, <laughs> in culture right now, it, it's like, oh, create your gender, create your this, create your life, create your, like, let's figure out your purpose without any biblical understanding to undergird that. It, it, it's like we're telling you, you can be whatever you want to be. 
Well, you can, but wouldn't it be great to know what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a child of God, like what, what the scriptures say, how we're supposed to live and act? Shouldn't you know that first? Then you can innovate. Then you can, you can get dreams and, and have revelations, like, but only when you understand your purpose, your plan, and the biblical foundation of your life is settled. And so we're going through it backwards, I'm afraid, and it seems nice, and it seems well-meaning, innovative and creative, but I, I don't think it is in the long run. All right, so on that note, we're going to jump into instructions for the household of God. So Paul is going to be instructing these various people groups, um, really age groups, that he gives specific instruction for. We're going to go through each one. All right, so this is Titus 2, verse 2. We're just going to work all the way through the chapter. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. He gives the call to the older men first, and he calls them into this. And to be fair, like, I don't think this is necessarily age required in our day and age. Like, I, you can compare this to experience as well. I do have some gray hair, so I'd like to say I'm an older man, but some would disagree with me, but I will, I'll name it, claim it, which is not sound doctrine, by the way. <laughs> Boom. Um, all right. So, but we're, they're called, as you get older, like it, there is more and more of a calling to be a spiritual mom and dad in the faith. And so you don't want to get lazy. You want, you want to be operating in temperance and focus and leading the charge in sound faith and love and endurance. And in our culture, we don't honor the, you know, the elderly like we should, but ultimately, like, I think there's a lot of that connected with this, but ultimately we need to honor those that have gone before us because they're going to teach us. But for the older men and women, having a vision and knowing your life in this season is more important even than it was before. You're called to lay the foundation that the next generation comes to run in, not just kind of like retire and go and hide somewhere and, and you know enjoy the cozy comforts of life. No, that is not your calling in Christ. And so he's calling the older men and the older women first and foremost. He's He's declaring to Titus how to teach them. All right, older women, says, be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine. Apparently they had a drinking problem in Crete for just the women, apparently. That's what it says. I don't know. I didn't study that. But, um, but to teach what is good. Teach what is good. Women Older women are teachers, and they go into this of younger women. And you are called to teach what is good. To, and sometimes I think even my generation and below, we belittle the wisdom of our parents, the wisdom of the generation before us, and we would do well to glean from them. And the older generation would do well to know their authority and their place, to, to even if we're not listening, to counsel us and give us wisdom and, and build us up in truth. And if you're not listening, by the way, you're probably not going to get a whole lot of info anyway. But it's so critical that we bridge this divide between generations. This is demonic. This is evil. And, and it really has come to destroy and, and, and remove the impartation of what God's done in the past to bring it to our kids and our children's children. It's really no good. And so he's not saying that per se in here, but I'm saying it for now. All right. Older women. So uh, to keep going, they are, so then they can urge the older women, the younger women to do this. Urge the younger women to love their husbands and children. That's an important one. You know, back in that time, the arranged marriage was how 
the marriages worked in Crete. So like how important would it be to learn how to love your, your husband and children when literally the state sanctioned it and puts you together based on your age? And so romance and the way we think of like marriage now is not the way it was our, back then. So how much more? He's saying learn to love your husbands and learn to love your children. To be self-controlled and pure. To be busy at home. To be kind and, to subje- and be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. So the older women are to teach this to the younger women. And it's interesting here, when it says to be busy at home, I, I don't believe this scripture applies in the way of you shouldn't be working. Like if you would like to work and God's called you to work as a woman, I think that's perfectly fine. But I will say this, there is, there is in culture, going back to the culture, this belittling of mother, motherhood that is absolutely no good. It is nonsense. And it's layering this lie on women that they can't just be mothers, that they can't just pull out and, and do the mothering thing. That is an honorable thing before God. And his word speaks to it. And I want to encourage you, those of you that feel called into that, pursue that. That's a good thing. And don't let the culture mold and shape you to think that that's not an honorable way to spend your time and, and to pour out your life because it really is a life poured out unto the Lord. Amen? Um, so the women are to be built up by the older women, all right? And now we're going to get to... We're going to get to, hold on, I'm missing something here. We're going to get to the young men, all right? So everybody else has six, has like five or six, you know, things. The young men, they get one word. <laughs> Be self-controlled. That's, drop the mic. That's it. I think as, as young men, I'll call myself a young man now. Like we're, we're a little simpler, you know? It's just, just tell us what to do. Be self-controlled do that. And, and I, I think that's so important because especially in, in a world where we in this church, we understand that we can move in the gifts. We understand you can, you can heal, that God will touch. God, God will do incredible things through his people. If you ask him, he will heal and restore physical and broken bodies. But ultimately, if you want to do this stuff, you want to be a spirit-led believer, self-control. That is That's the value system. That's the kingdom mentality of a young man in order to walk in those things. Because we can hear these stories. We can want to be these great revivalists. You don't have self-control. You're not going anywhere. It's really important that we see the value of self-control because, once again, the culture is not talking about it. The culture will love self-control when an athlete, right, when they do something great because you see, oh, look at their self-control. But in most other places, we don't value or look up to leaders or people that operate in self-control. We like the grandiose people that like, you know, those are the people that get all the, all the YouTube followers, <laughs> the people that have the big cars and do just crazy things. No, self-control is the model for young men and for all of us for that matter. I want to go to this quote. Um, this is by author Tim Chester, and he says this. Young men need to grow up to take life seriously, to take their faith seriously, and to be responsible. There is no room in the church for living for yourself for two or more decades before becoming, before beginning to live out the biblical picture of a man. I want to call young men in this room. You do not have time to waste. Live a life of focus. Live a life of self-control. Live it now. Even though maybe you don't have a wife and kids and all the demands that would maybe cause you to live more controlled. Live it now. 
Live it now because of him. Live it now because Christ, the hope of glory, lives in you, and he's called you to something greater. If you want to set a foundation, you want to lead a family, you want a wife that will submit to your leadership, it's time to be self-controlled now and walk in the ways of God now. There's an urgency that I feel like is missed right now in adolescence. Like we think we can just get away with living loosely. And there is grace. God does restore and heal. But if you know it right now and you're in this room right now, you're responsible for that word. You're responsible to live in that way. And I guarantee you, if you live that way, the fruit of your life will be abundant and beautiful. And you'll find yourself able to lead families and companies and churches because you live in light of what God's word says. Titus 7, or chapter 2, verse 7. And, and this is a continuation, once again, of how walking in these attributes, all right? Titus 2, verse 7 says this. In everything, set them as an example by doing what is good. People are watching you and me. People are watching the body of Christ in New York. You know, one of the reasons people don't come to church as often, I, I saw it recently, is because they don't trust the pastors because they think, they're, they think we're a bunch of liars. They, and, and why do they think that? Because they're watching and they're seeing a bunch of lying and corruption and, and things that aren't sound. But not even the pastors. They're watching you and me saying, is, this, is Jesus really? Do these people look any different than me at work? Like, do they, do they think any different? Do they operate any differently? We're called to be salt and light, and we have to look different. So set an example by doing what is good, and your teaching show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. This is that blameless life we were talking about. We were talking about eldership. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. That's a high bar. Daniel lived that way. They had nothing, they tried to get dirt on Daniel. They had nothing bad they could find on him. They had to use his prayer and devotion as the way to undermine him before the king. That's Old Testament. In the New Testament, how much more can we live in this excellence, in this blamelessness? I understand that, it, that it's a high call, but this is the call on our lives. All right, Titus Chapter, well, I want to say this last thing real quick. So all this is to strengthen families. Like all this instruction is to strengthen the families. To co- and I believe also for us to connect the generations together. But how many know false teaching? One way to discern false teaching, it subvert, subverts families. It tries to erode and destroy the family system. Whereas the word of God in sound teaching, it actually unifies families. It breaks division by the blood of Jesus. It brings connection and honor and strengthens the family unit. So that's another way for us to, to really discern what's sound doctrine and what, what may not be. All right, Titus 2, starting at verse 9, says this. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show they can be fully trusted, so in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. So this verse is going to conjure up a lot of, a lot of thoughts. Because there's a, there's a lot of things in this verse, historically. But I'll say this. He's speaking, first and foremost, to a family. The families in that day were comprised of slaves. This was how it was created. Um, this is how society functioned. Now, you and I both know, you probably know, that the scriptures like this were used in our nation and other nations throughout the earth to do terrible and vile things, to enslave people and to keep them enslaved and to keep them submissive to the masters. So this verse has been taken and used for all sorts of terrible things by people in the church historically. 
So let's not sugarcoat how, how this scripture has been used. That is real, and that did happen. It's a historical truth. It's important that we know and we understand what is the historical context of this verse. And it's important that we don't say, here's slavery in the Bible, and think slavery in America. Two very different things. But hear me, hear me it doesn't mean that this verse was used for evil, nasty, terrible things. So just because the cultures are different, the usage in, in church history is undisputably terrible. And so it should be called for what it is. So slavery in that day and age. So slavery in, in those times, I mean, nobody, nobody thought slavery was a moral issue in that time. Literally nobody. Nobody's speaking, saying this is a moral, morally corrupt thing. The only thing in, in, the, you know, in the history of slavery at that time was Spartacus and the slave revolts that were taking place. But they weren't taking place on moral ground. They were taking place on we're bigger and stronger than you and we're going to break free. And we're going to do what we're going to do. And, and so it's, it's a, the way we see slavery now, the ideological assumptions they would not have had at that time. So that's an important point. The other thing about slavery, it was not racially based in this time of slavery. So it certainly it was in America. But at this time, it was not racial. It was actually more of if you were conquered by a people or you had economic problems, you would be enslaved, right? So one country takes over another. They enslave those people. You have economic issues. You subject yourself to slavery. And slavery was different in that there were quite a bit of slaves who lived well, who were educated, who were, I mean, look at Daniel. He was a slave, like who, who raised up in positions of power and authority and, and actually did pretty amazing things in society. Um, when you were a slave at that time, you often were released after age 30. So right around 30, you would be released. And you were often considered of a higher class than even the poor at that time. So you'd be considered a higher level because often you would live better than the poor. But to be fair, they were treated quite harshly. And the, and the New Testament does respond to that because they were, they were treated terribly. I, I don't know if it's necessarily as bad as slaves were treated in America, but there was certainly a lot of evils that were happening even then towards the slaves. So the New Testament does not outright condemn slavery. It doesn't. It's just a reality. And so, man, I wish it did. But it, it does not. But that does not mean that Christianity doesn't itself come and war against slavery. And I will, I will get to that. So Paul says, even in the scriptures, there's neither slave nor free. That was a radical statement in his day and age. Now it's like, duh. There it's like, what is he saying? Like, that was radical. And in fact, many slaves would come and be saved because they saw that the Christian message was giving them a sense of, um, was upping their status in society because they were saying slaves are not inferior to free men. They're not. And so the gospel is warring against that. And you see that all throughout the scriptures, the New Testament of what Paul is writing. Now, if you look and you see what's taken place since the Gospels, right? People have taken the scriptures, the Bible, and they've used it all sorts of terrible ways to keep slavery about afloat. But it has been the catalyst to actually destroy and take down slavery historically. So people not having sound doctrine take these scriptures and use it to promote slavery. People with sound doctrine, like William Wilberforce and many others, take the scriptures and say, this is a liberation for those that are enslaved. And so they took the same text, but understood God's heart, understood his ways, and were convicted by his spirit and actually undid some of the evils of slavery in the earth. So it's important that we take the full context here. And I'll say this, I don't want to gloss over this, this text. That's why we're lead, reading line by line. So it's not a comfortable text, 
but this is the reality. And, and we need to be informed as believers to what the word says. When people come to you and ask you about these things, you need to know what's actually in here and the cultural context behind it and the historical context behind it. So going to verse 11, Titus 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. Salvation to all people. Once again, this is another radical statement that he's giving. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live, here it is, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So did you catch that? The grace of God, first of all, it's for everyone, for those who will receive him, to believe his name, again, right, to become children of God. And it teaches us the grace of God does not give us license to sin and do terrible things. The grace of God teaches us to what? To say no to ungodliness. See, a lot of people in the modern age, they use God's grace. They talk about it as a means to let you do whatever the heck you want to do. But that's not what grace does. In fact, grace causes you to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Isn't that good? So growing up, I was told about grace, the, the kind of traditional statement about grace. It's grace is undeserved, unmerited favor. And grace was positioned to me in, in its true form as the reality that God has forgiven us of our sins, that we come, that we're guilty and we're sinful and we cannot come before God. But because of God's grace, he can take someone guilty and sinful, just like you and me, and he can make us clean and he can make us whole and his blood can cover us and we can be raised to new life through his death. So that's how grace was presented to me, which is 100% true. That is a definition of grace. But grace, there's another, there's another component of grace. And you see this in Corinthians, and you see it right here in, in this verse. Grace also empowers us. So grace, it, it pardons us. It pardons us in how we relate to God. It allows us to be with him. But it also gives us power. Power for what? Power over sin. Grace gives you and me power over sin where we're weak and broken and we cannot overcome the sin in our life. Because of grace, we can dominate sin and we can live a life that honestly no one else could live because the grace of God is infused in us. So John Piper says this. He says, grace, it refers to someone's, it also refers to someone's inherent disposition from God that produces action power and influence and forces us and causes us to develop real practical outcomes for the kingdom of God. Grace is power over sin. Grace is power to do abounding good works, right? That's 2 Corinthians 9. Grace is the power to actually work harder than other people. You know that? That seems like performance-based. It's not. Check out 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Paul, Paul bragged that he worked harder than anyone else because of God's grace. Grace will allow you to work harder and smarter than anyone else. Grace will allow you, 2 Corinthians 12, to overcome persecution. Where you're persecuted, where you're oppressed, people hate you and they speak ill against you, it's God's grace that allow you to respond with love and to respond with an overcoming spirit and to not respond in the same spirit. God's grace is a powerful, powerful thing. I want to jump to this quote by John Piper. John Piper's got a lot of great things on grace, by the way, if you want to dig into the topic of grace. So 
They're going to put up on the screen here. Here's this quote by John Piper. It says this. The key to Christian living is a thirst and a hunger for God. That's what we were talking about last week. Rich was talking about that. And one of the main reasons people do not understand or experience the sovereignty of grace. And the way it works through the awakening of sovereign joy is that their hunger and thirst for God is so small. See, when we, when we don't hunger and thirst for the living God, we end up capping our ability to receive and take in the grace of God. And so last week, as we were praying for hunger and thirst, and we were, people were coming to the front, we were asking, God, would you pour it out? Like, fill us with understanding of, of, of who you are. Lord, make us more hungry for you. When you hunger for God, he will feed you grace. Because that is how he operates. That's who he is. He's a God of continual outpouring of grace. And so when we hunger for him, we get more grace. And what does the grace of God do in us? It produces this sovereign joy that bubbles up out of us. That's the type of thing where you can, you can run and not be weary, where you can walk and not be faint, because it's God's grace that equips you and that refreshes you, and you're just living in continual joy. So people say, like, like, no, like, how do you get out of a works mentality? Well, you have to live in God's grace. If you want to break, and, and some of us have come through backgrounds where all we've known is working for God, doing things for God, to please him, to make us, to make us right with him. But when you get in that grace mentality, you can do more. Because his grace washes over you and fills you with joy. And so no matter, no matter when you mess up, you can turn to him and repent and know you're going to receive his grace. And it actually allows you to run the race. Older men, it allows you to run the race. Older women, it allows you to run the race. Younger men, it allows you to run the race. Younger women, it allows you to run the race. You need grace to run the race. You need his grace. So I'm calling you out all these things this morning, just as Titus was called by Paul. But you need his grace to actually do the stuff, to actually live a self-controlled life. And if you haven't had an encounter, understood his grace, you're going to burn out like you just really are. And so that's why we need spiritual moms and dads who've walked in it, who've slipped up, who've messed up, but who've turned and repented and found grace from their heavenly father and can help you and I to turn and find grace in our time of need, to come before the throne of grace. All right, last part of Titus. So worship team, you guys can come on up. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Here's what it says. So we're talking, he's talking about grace, God's grace poured out. And then he says this massively important statement. While we wait for the blessed hope. The blessed hope. That's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. So did you catch that? The blessed hope is the appearing of God. Your Hope is something that is, that is going to happen. Like hope is not, I wish this thing would happen. Hope is this will happen. And there's one blessed hope, and it's the return of Christ, our King. And it's the setting up of his kingdom, and it's the leveling of everything that's dark and wicked and vile, and the establishment of the kingdom of God, wiping away of every tear from every eye. That is the blessed hope. It's the appearing of Christ. It's what we're singing about today. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That they're, In their day and age, they're thinking, this is the blessed hope. And it was. But now we're waiting for an additional blessed hope. But I want to keep going. Who gave himself up front to redeem us from all wickedness and purify himself a people that are his own. By God's grace, you are his own. 
You, by God's grace, you have been purified. By God's grace, you have been pardoned. And then here's the second part, the second part of grace. Eager to do what is good. By God's grace, you are eager to do what is good. If you're here today and you love the Lord and you've given your heart to Jesus and there's places in you where you're not eager to do what is good, that is something you can pray into. That is something you can ask and say, God, through I need a revelation of your grace. I need understanding. I need sound doctrine, sound teaching to know that you've made me to desire the things that are good. Jesus, as Bill said earlier, walked as a man, and yet he was sinless because he desired God. He desired the things of God more than he desired the delicacies of man, more than he did, than, and he refused to give in to the, to the sin. To, and so thus we can walk in victory. We can walk in wholeness. It's a higher bar, friends, than what we've thought. But you can go for a bar that high when you know God's grace. You can set your your expectations higher because his grace covers you along the way. So the last verse says, these are the things then you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Everybody stand, please. So today is Palm Sunday. We're talking about today our, our blessed hope, the return of Christ, our King. And so back in that day, as I said earlier, they were, they were thinking, this man riding on this donkey, a prophecy from Zechariah 9, they were thinking, this man's going to come and set up a kingdom on the earth that no one can crush. And they were 100% right. But they weren't realizing he was going to come humble and lowly. That he was going to come and, and up in the world and draw all men and women unto himself. And that in fact the blessed hope had still not fully come. Because he was going to start the plan. He was going to initiate the plan. But he was going to send the Holy Spirit to rest on us, his people, until he returned to fulfill the plan. See, in our hyper-individualized culture, we often get caught up in, we want to know our purpose. We want to know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we get a bit obsessed with our purpose instead of knowing God's purpose. We, we want to find ourselves in God's purpose, not try to understand ours or fit God into ours. And so I want to read this to you, John chapter 12. This, this, is, this is the the scene where Christ comes into Jerusalem. And just just picture with me this scene. Here he goes. John chapter 12, starting at verse 12. The next day, the great crowd had come from the festival, and they heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. And they took palm branches, and they went out to meet him. And they shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey, and he sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. It's kind of funny I'm preaching today. (laughs) Do not be afraid, daughter Zion, for you see, your king is coming. Father, I pray today, Lord, would you strengthen us, your church? Lord, would you grow us and mature us? that we would be fixated on this blessed hope, the coming of our King, the King who will return to finish what he started. 
Lord, I pray today, would you give us sound doctrine, Lord, that we would refute what is not of you and that we would embrace your word and your truth, that we would take hold of the revelation we've been getting, that we would share the gospel without mixture, Lord, that we would be unafraid and unashamed, full of love and full of grace as we go into the world to share of your son, Jesus. God, I pray you would raise up healthy households, Lord. Lord, I pray where there's been confusion, even confusion for men, confusion for women, confusion for our place in the home, confusion for even even where there's been separation between one generation and the next. God, would you heal those places of separation, Lord? Would you heal? Would you touch? Would you bring restoration to bring impartation in this present generation that we would learn from those that went before us. God, that we would walk in a passion and a love for you in a sound, singular mindedness, Lord, that we would not be persuaded. We would not be tossed to and fro by the winds and waves of culture, but we'd be filled with your spirit, enlivened by your word, empowered by your grace. God of grace, come and have your way in this place. I just pray right now for some of you that even as I was sharing those words earlier, there was like a conviction of your heart. Holy Spirit, would you move on that conviction, Lord? Would you separate it from shame, Lord? Would you know that there's a conviction of the Holy Spirit that causes you to live rightly, to lean into his heart, to experience the God of grace? But Lord, where there's this lie of shame, where, where that shame that wants to beat people down, it wants to, it wants to diminish who God's made you to be. Lord, that you would, that you would come in with your grace, and cause us to turn and repent, and cause us to step in to who you've made us to be, sons and daughters, spiritual moms and dads raising up spiritual sons and daughters. Lord, call us into that place today. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come convict, to come build up, to come correct, to come disciple, to come strengthen our hearts. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can also follow us on Instagram at Life Center NYC or YouTube at Life Center Church NYC.